Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by our two production coordinators, Jody Wall and Nick Plymel. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 9 on Key Instrument Parameters. If you would like to follow along with us, then you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website, www.inorganicventures.com. All right, so let's talk about some of the key instrument parameters. So I want to say, you know, ICP OES or ICP mass spec, the nebulizer gas flow is probably a critical parameter. Jody, what would you say to that? Yeah, that definitely makes a big difference. Yeah, and we've found cases too, I know that you found recently, just you can see differences between actual like physical nebulizers, just, you know, same part number, just different serial numbers, right? We did. That was a recent surprise to us. We had never really paid that much attention to it until just recently. We started having some problems and we started checking it out. And we actually set a couple of different optimization projects for each of our nebulizers, even though they're all the same part. So we had to go through and mark them and set up some some templates for that. But it definitely helped us through like a rough patch where we're getting a lot of really nasty data. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. I thought if you just ordered the same part number that everything should be the same. But I think that's just not the case. They're just too fine of settings to you really. It's probably best practice to really check if you get a new part, even if you've ordered it once before. Just double check that you're still optimized to the right flow. I mean, they should be in the same ballpark. But yeah, they can vary a little bit from from nebulizer to nebulizer. And another thing to think about is that the flow rate is going to change depending on the material that the nebulizer is made out of. So you're going to have a different flow rate for glass versus plastic. So that's another thing to sort of optimize when you're setting up your intro system. Yeah, something else that kind of coincided with that is we got a new instrument that is much more sensitive than our old instrument. So maybe we're just seeing those differences now more than we used to. So if you happen to get some new stuff and it works better, you might want to go back and recheck. Definitely. And Nick, what would you say about just, you know, if you have a nebulizer for a long time, do you think you might see any changes just over the lifespan of the nebulizer? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that's going to happen with any intro system part. You're probably going to see changes the longer you use that part. Certain things like running an HF blend or HF solutions through a glass system, that's really going to change your nebulizer flow rate. You want to try to limit that as much as possible or switch to a plastic system to sort of offset that. So yeah, the more you run an intro system part, the more you're going to expect to see those changes happen over time. And as we sort of go through and optimize these these settings, you know, really what you're looking for is you have some sort of standard solution that you're aspirating through the system. And then you're sort of looking for basic parameters, um, basic parameters like intensity, RSDs, those sorts of things. So I know, Jody, you mentioned that we had to go through and study to actually figure out that the nebulizers were giving us differences. What was that process like? So, yeah, something we talked about in a previous one, too, was our maintenance logs. So that's one of the things we keep 
track of in our maintenance logs daily is um, usually, I think we use manganese as our kind of baseline intensity and some of the other instruments, that's for our older instruments, some of our newer instruments have more than one that we check daily to just run your standard solution through there. So you're looking at intensities and you're looking at RSDs for kind of two or three elements that you know show up relatively, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Often. <laughs> <laughs> or stable, you know, they, they kind of always give you, they give you a the same reading every day uh, okay. so you can keep track of when it starts to drop off a cliff. Yeah, we tend to check, I think it's arsenic, manganese, lead, there might be another one that I'm missing there, but we're kind of all over the wavelength spectrum. Um, that way you can kind of see what the lower wavelengths and the higher wavelengths are doing. So if you kind of got a key, a couple key elements across the entire spectrum, that's a good thing to to look at. So what we noticed was when we would change out our nebulizer the next day to a cleaner one, and suddenly those numbers would change, and they didn't used to change; they used to stay the same. So then you can start changing your flow rate and watching those numbers change around a little bit. And when you kind of get them to the number that you, you know, have decided is your normal number because you've graphed it over years, so yeah, then we could set it to that's the optimal flow rate for that particular nebulizer yeah and when folks are sort of searching for that optimal flow rate they just have to run that sample over and over again just make a tiny change to the gas flow rate or make a tiny change to maybe like the the peristaltic pump speed but just make sure i would point out don't measure it once and then take that as the number make sure you know if you're doing this measure multiple times just in case you get a weird replicate you don't want to base all of your instrument settings off of just one reading so I think it's important to always just double check. And you always want to make sure that you're changing one thing at a time. If you change too many things at once, it's really hard to see what's making the biggest difference in your RSTs and your intensities. Definitely. And I'll throw out too that if folks are interested, we have um, the templates of the maintenance logs that we use for our instruments. They're available online on Ivy Ignite. So if you have an Ivy Ignite membership, you can log into the resources page and download those templates and use them. You know, feel free to take them use what works for you, cut out what doesn't, and it's yours to use. Next up, I think in this chapter that Paul pointed out, RF power was an important key parameter. And this is something that, you know, really we don't mess with once the instrument is installed and things are working properly and we've we've done our method validations. But it is something that we've seen gone bad, go, go bad quite a few times. And I know, Jody, that's a, never a fun call when those go out, right? No, it's not. And you may have to convince your service provider that that's what's wrong. It, it's one of the more expensive fixes. So they they try to make sure it's nothing else first. But yeah, you see it more, or at least we see it more when we're dealing with single element solutions and you're watching that same element over and over and over again. It can get lost in the noise if you're looking for multiple things. So yeah, we notice most if you're just watching one and it just kind of starts to to bounce around a lot more. Yeah, and I know for, it probably depends on instrument to instrument, but I know for one of our older instruments, you could hear it when it was about to die. The actual tone and pitch of the instrument when it was running would sound a little different. So that's something that I always like to point out to folks that, you know, try to get to know your instrument as well as you can, not just what it should look like, but also what it should sound like. And it might also save you some some trouble when you're trying to troubleshoot things. But that RF power is, you know, and how it should work is, is the more you turn up your RF power, the higher intensities you should get. But if you start turning up your RF power just to get back to the intensities that you were at once, then it's probably on its way out and you may want to call out, uh, you know, a service technician. 
All right. So there are some other factors that Paul mentioned that I think are, are pretty important. Torch position being one of them. And that is one of the things that people don't think about a whole lot. Nick, you've sort of seen this through multiple instruments about how important that torch placement is. I'll let you sort of run us through this one. Yeah. So when we first, when I first started here, we had an old variant ICP system, which obviously doesn't exist anymore. They've been bought out by Agilent at this point. But we used to have, like Jody mentioned in an earlier podcast, an, like an index card that would measure two millimeters away from the interface because that is about the length of um, distance that we wanted between the interface and the um, torch. So yeah, changing that position can really affect particularly your intensities, but obviously the the less optimization you've done for it, the worse your RSDs can be as well. So yeah, it's it takes a little bit of playing around, making sure that you're trying to get as consistent as possible. The newer instruments seem to have better torch position alignment software. As far as we've noticed, we haven't really had to play with those as much. They've got better... I don't know. I don't know what I'm looking for. Yeah, there have been some changes in the actual physical way you put in the torches yeah. into the newer instruments, too. They made it a lot more dummy-proof, so it's not quite as hard to get it in the right spot anymore, but it's still something to watch out for. Yeah, you definitely don't want to have too much of a distance between your torch and your interface, and you don't want to be right up on top of it either. Or there's a little bit of a gap is kind of the best thing to shoot for. Yeah, that's something I know instrument manufacturers are always trying to improve. You know, how can they help maintenance go a lot easier. And one of the things that they found is just, you know, having that torch, since the placement is so important, if your instrument isn't a model where it just sort of clicks in the place or snaps into place and they tell you not to worry about it, you may want to, you know, see if messing around with the torch placement will help out some, you know, I know a lot of times for us, it was either back it off a little bit or bring it forward just a, just a hair, getting that really fine tuned was, was really important. And then also hard to translate when you had a department of, you know, five or six people to make sure that those five or six people were setting it in the same place every day. So it's something that's difficult to calibrate, but once you get it, you should be, should be pretty set. One of the other key instrument parameters I think is peri-pump tubing tension, which Jody, I'm going to throw this one over to you. I know this is a, a little sort of pet peeve of yours. <laughs> yeah. So I always try to convince my techs that if you start seeing the tension go funny to just get a whole brand new piece of tubing. Don't try to change the actual tension settings. It, it just ends up in heartache. But you do want to make sure you get those settings to the right thing to start with and then leave them there. So you usually you kind of like loosen it all the way and then let it flow through and then just start tightening it down. So you basically you kind of want it as you want it at the minimum tightness that makes everything flow like evenly i guess so yeah so you want to because if you tighten it down too hard then you're you're going to choke it off and you're not going to get your sample in the right place but if you have it too loose then it's not enough you know it's not going to have enough tension to pump through there so yeah so do that experiment once get it in just the right spot and then don't change it just get new tubing after that yeah i think that'll save everyone just a, a lot of trouble because yeah it might be it might need a little bit of tightening extra tightening for that one piece but the next piece you throw in there is just not going to work at all so yeah change out tubing should be changing out tubing regularly anyway so help with washout all right is there any other uh, key instrument parameters that you guys can think of that we should talk about for this chapter and i think we've mentioned making sure that your instrument is timed correctly but that's another thing with the tubing you want to make sure that your instrument has enough time to actually pull the sample up get it to the torch 
stabilize and then start taking measurements. So obviously that can affect things. If you're starting to measure too early, you're going to see the intensities jump all over the place and your RCs are going to be just awful. So usually a little bit more time is better than a little bit less. Well, we hope that you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivignite at inorganicventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 10 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss calibration curves. We hope you'll join us then and have a fantastic week.